Если немцы хотят не истребить ли войну, они ее получат. Pressing people of color all over the world and on local level, the police, fashion police, repressing the white revolutionaries as well as the black. And the reason that this class over here has never did anything to get this class off his back because this is lower, this is upper, this is the oppressed, this is the oppressed. You asked me to confess to something. Ayer estuvo el diablo aquí, huele a sufre todavía. And the cheap labor taken out of these countries. These countries are not underdeveloped, they're overexploited. You're listening to Revolutionary Lumpen Radio with me, your co-host Shibi. And I am the Zen Marxist. This episode we're going to cover Combat Liberalism by Mao Zedong. It was published September 7th, 1937. It was written for the party, but I also feel like it's something maybe a few comrades, including myself, has taken a bit too far sometimes how to combat manifestations of liberalism. We're hoping that it's a lot of new ideas and concepts and philosophies that people are going to understand and we're really going to make it as easy as possible for everybody to understand all of these themes, subjects, topics and analysis. Ryan, would you please Tell us more about the history of combat liberalism, the time in which it was written, why was it written, and how was it received, what was happening at that time in China. Yeah, absolutely. So as we said, you know, combat liberalism was written in September of 1937 for specifically the Communist Party of the time. And you have to understand that, you know, at, at the time this is written, we're about one month into the um, Second Sino-Japanese War. So at this stage, it's pre-World War II, obviously. Mao Zedong hasn't won the Civil War yet. We're very much pre-all of that. So Japan is invading at this time. They're going to end up, and there's going to be, you know, ultimately three forces that end up owning or controlling parts of China. Um, one of them is obviously Mao Zedong and the Communist Party. The second is the invading uh, Japanese forces, and the third are the KMT, Shanghai Shek, the nationalists who will end up controlling another third part of China, essentially. And this was written for the Communist Party that Mao Zedong controls, essentially to keep the party free of any invading ideologies. So it's to make sure that, you know, literally liberals don't get into the party, any sort of Chiang Kai-shek uh, followers or supporters, nationalists or anything like that, um, spies, you know, anything like that. Any, any pervasive ideology that Mao Zedong ultimately, you know, doesn't want or doesn't agree with or would pollute or divert the party's goal. And um, when we say liberalism here, so if you're American and you hear the term liberalism, in common parlance, it's used to mean like Democrats, right? Or like if you're in the UK, you know, conservatives will say, well, that's, that's what Labour supporters are. But in this instance, you have to understand that liberalism is essentially the philosophical position, the philosophical ideology of capitalism. So by this understanding, 
both Democrats and Republicans, independents, Green Party members, they're all liberal. Right. Same thing in the UK. Labour, Conservative, you know, they're all liberal because ultimately these are capitalist parties. The only thing they disagree with ultimately is, you know, how many pennies they give back to the working class or, you know, how many extra pennies they tax the richest among us. But ultimately, these parties all agree fundamentally with the core of the capitalist system. They none of them want to fundamentally change the relationship of the working class to the means of production. They just quabble and query over, you know, what the tax rate should be, you know, minor things here. They don't fundamentally want to change the actual relationship to the means of production. Yeah, well said. Thank you for all of that being written at the start of a war. You can hardly imagine, like, any Western leader publishing something or anything as well thought out that Mao was writing at the time. It was in the party's best interest. They were talking about potential infiltration from other liberals. So let's talk about that. We've mentioned ideology again. We want to be clear on things. So what is ideology? How can liberalism be an ideology? And what does that mean for people? So Mark said, there's how things are and then like how things appear to be, everything in the middle of that is ideology. It's like the perception of reality because you can't know everything about anything, um, especially in a dialectical you know, universe. Things are constantly changing. For example, ideology is you know, that interpretation of something external from yourself. So for example, a, a banker or somebody well off might look at a homeless person and see, you know, a, an alcoholic, a drug addict, you know, someone like social scum in there, in it. But obviously somebody from a less well off background, then they might look at them and see somebody who is being neglected or, you know, went through some bad times. Um, and just become unlucky. You know, a homeless person could have been one of us, you know, if we were born into their body, you know, somebody more thoughtful might think these things, but somebody doesn't think these things, you know, what is there to go off? Only what they've seen off TV, only what they've heard people talk about. And, you know, this is ultimately like the culture of other people, isn't it? Um, again, some people see, you know, many drug addicts and then just see them as weak people who aren't strong enough to just, you know, work out and get their fucking life together and that. And it's like they just can't perceive what they've actually gone through. So that ideology comes into play and then they try and draw conclusions from, you know, the culture or what they've heard from other people and things. Sure, I mean, I can give you one easily. It's like ableism, right? So, like, essentially, you just have to ask yourself the question, like, why does society look down upon, treat differently, marginalize, right, like, disabled people? And very simply, it's because they cannot, well, obviously some of them can, but they cannot contribute to the capitalist system in the same way, right? Like, if you're wheelchair-bound, then that makes every aspect of your life harder, including making more money for the bourgeoisie right? Like, they don't care about you because, I mean, can you work a standard job? Not really. I mean, they'd have to, again, accommodate you specially, and they don't want to do that, 
right? They don't want to spend that extra money, the time, that they're not, they're, not, they're not interested, they don't care, right? They could much easier just hire an able-bodied person to do that job and you just get cast aside. Liberalism and ideology, the way I think of it is like, it's actually the way the ruling class thinks about things, right? It's the bourgeois mindset. So when you see, and it doesn't, obviously it doesn't just come from the bourgeoisie, ultimately it becomes like propaganda and then it seeps into you know, every element of life. And then what happens is you end up with proletariats saying these same things, right? Because they don't understand. They don't, they don't have a knowledge of where this comes from and why it's bad and why you shouldn't do it and why this kind of mindset ultimately works against them, right? Because capitalism basically just sees all of us as batteries, right? That's what you are. You're a battery. You turn up to your job, you do your work, you discharge some of your energy. And then eventually when you can't work anymore. I mean, like, say you're a miner and you work and you work and you work and you mine coal, whatever it is you're doing. And then eventually you get, you know, what, what's it called? Like miner's lung, black lung or something. And then you die, right? They don't care. You're just a battery that's been depleted. Then you're just going to get thrown away and they get another battery, right? So if you can't contribute to the economic model, if you don't politely and nicely fit into the bourgeois mode of production, they don't care about you ultimately. So yeah, I mean, if you're wheelchair bound, like they don't, they don't care about you. It's like, they're looking at you like, what can you do for me? Can you work a normal standard nine to five without special accommodations? No, no, then why would I care? Right? That's the bourgeois mindset. That's how capitalists function, because they need as many workers as possible to make them richer, right? Yeah, we're talking about culture influencing everybody, like all individuals, you know what I mean? Like, well, many people in society may not see disabled people all their life, but then once they do, they know how to fucking make fun of them. Do you know what I mean? And this is where we're saying in media, in films and TV shows, like many people see able as shit on TV all the time. They hear about it in jokes. It's almost fucking folklore. Do you know what I mean? And, and this is where we talk about like, it's a cultural thing. It's like almost like the ruling class know that we're going to encounter these things that could potentially make us think hold on that's unfair so they've already gave us explanations of how to see these things and and that couldn't just be about disabled people it could be about all sorts yeah i mean it's like that joke about two fish right like you know two fish swim past each other in a fishbowl and one says to the other you know the water's great today isn't it and the other fish keeps walking, stops, turns around and says, what the fuck is water? <laughs> right? Like, that's, that's all of us, right? Like, we exist in this society of bourgeois propaganda, and it just becomes like, you don't even recognize it or notice it, right? That's what's so important about communist Ooh. education, because it will break it down to you and illustrate it to you and show it to you. And then you'll be like, oh, wow, if I didn't understand this, then I would have just thought nothing of it. Like, this is just life. This is just how things are. Right. So like because we all I mean, if you live in the West, if you live in America, Europe, you know, I'm in England, obviously, then the predominant ideology is bourgeois liberalism. Right. It is. Which means this is the water that you grew up in. This is the water you swim in all the time. That's why it's so hard to try and explain to someone who knows nothing about politics or anything. Right. Like what I said earlier about ableism and bourgeois capitalism, they'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, no. They just revert, they just give you the liberalism line because that's all they know. Presuming they're not like a compassionate person, they'd be like, no, it's because they're bad and they don't do anything, right? Like that would be the line. Mm -hmm. It's not like 
the whole process is in their head. They won't tell you like, oh no, I think this because the bourgeois say that and then it comes down to me. And obviously they're not yeah. going to know all of that, right? They just know the line, right? We all grew up with it. It's everywhere. It's in the uh, media you watch growing up in cartoons. Like it's subversive, right? Like it's not really explicit. It's very much implicit. Mm-hmm. It was a good joke that I know if people picked up on it and it's a good, again, just to show the difference in how people can perceive things. You said that like the fish walked away and thought, well, you know, what the fuck is water? So some people might have picked up on right. that and was like, well, wait, how can a fish walk away? You know what I mean? And other, <laughs> and then other no, people, <laughs> yeah, but then it's other people that. might say, wait, how can a fucking fish talk? Do you know what I mean? So there's still so right, many sure. different layers in how you can interpret these things. And as Marxists, as revolutionaries, you know, Mao Zedong was trying to combat and, and talk about, you know, what is real, what is actually real, what we can all agree on as a party line. And that's so difficult in a world, as we're saying, is dominated by liberalism. So this is a genuine attempt to break away from that. And um, so we, we can go more into that, if you like, unless, Brian, you got any more thoughts on that about Mao's attempt to break away from liberalism or grow something else. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just a, it's a dialectical process, right? And things are ultimately defined by what they're not, right? Like, that's how a lot of us see ourselves and identity and who we are and what we do in life, right? Like, if religious people are defined by not being not religious people, if that makes sense. If you drive a car, then you're defined by people that don't drive. You know what I mean? Like, we're defined by our opposites. So the point of this article here is to understand that we are different from the opposite. We are not liberals. We are distinctly different. It's like a cell. Like, a cell wall is important because it distinguishes the cell from things that are not the cell. Right. So this here is sort of the ideological cell wall of the party. This is the thing that distinguishes us from not us, right? Like liberals from people who see communists. And going back to the fish joke thing, like I've actually had that conversation with people when they say like to the joke line is like, you know, what water? Like I've tried to talk to people about like propaganda and they're like, what propaganda? Like that's only a thing that happens in like bad countries. Like, there's no propaganda here. That's not a real thing. And that's that joke perfectly illustrates that point, right? Because they, the fish swims in water all day. So when someone asks what the water is, it's like, I don't even know what water is. Like, what are you talking about, right? Like, these people live in a society completely permeated with propaganda. But if you ask them about the propaganda, they'd be like, no, that doesn't exist. What are you talking about? Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's absolutely interesting that you brought up talking about like a kind of cell membrane of of like a, a body basically and that's living in this you know fucking ecosystem of, of other bodies and i want to draw a distinction with bakhmut that's happening at the time yeah everybody russia us nato proxy war going on in bakhmut now i'm over that city so a lot of the news stories you hear from you know western fucking analysts and generals and shit they're saying oh Bakhmut yeah it's not strategically important and this is just propaganda happening you know because they're blatantly gonna lose Bakhmut like the Russians will take it but it's this is the propaganda though it's because 
they are literally at war in a proxy war with Russia. But it's like the people, it's the soldiers and the fighters on the ground doing that war. So they need morale. And so like they've anticipated Bakhmut falling and then they've said, you know, Bakhmut, you know, it's not strategically important. Losing a single fucking centimetre of your territory is fucking strategically important. I just know that, no, the West has anticipated the fall of Bakhmut, saying it's not strategically important, so that when it does, the actual soldiers on the front line, the ones who are fighting Russia in this proxy war, they still have high morale. They're not going to ask themselves, oh my God, we've lost Bakhmut, what's next? It's going to be this city next, it's going to be this city next. That can unravel, you know, morale in a unit. And wage slaves, the proletariat, are the exact same thing. It's like we are fed, you know, bullshit all the fucking time, this propaganda, so that we can't even ask the right questions because the questions that are probably worth asking, they've already presented it for you with their own answer before you've heard it from an independent source, essentially. And obviously there's nothing independent, and let me go more into this now. So let's talk about Antonio Gramsci's quote here because Antonio Gramsci wrote this in the selections from the prison notebooks where they were just in prison as a member of the Communist Party of Italy or founder member. So they wrote, The whole of language is a continuous process of metaphor and the history of semantics is an aspect of the history of culture. Language is at the same time a living thing and a museum of fossils of life and civilizations. I'll give you an example of that, just for something I know off the head. Like, like in America, there's that term rednecks, right? But do you actually know where redneck comes from as a term? Nope. So I think it was during like the Battle of the Bulge, during all the miners' strikes and everything, the labor unions would wear red scarves around their necks to identify each other. Right. So they knew who were striking unionists and they knew who their allies were. Right. And then over time, what, what is the term redneck became? It's become like a derogatory term for like southern uneducated people. Right. Like the, the, the term got adapted. It got it got changed. Right. The meaning became derogatory and insulting. Right. But ultimately, the origin of the term redneck was communist. Basically, it's from the. 19th, 20th century, somewhere there. I forget what year exactly, right? But there's an actual revolutionary history to that term when all the miners and they all went on strike and they openly fought in warfare with the US government, right? The US literally bombed them, members of these unions, because, you know, they would machine gun them as well. That's where the Pinkertons come from, right? So this is how language is used. It gets adapted and changed over time. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. Just a little editor's note, we just want to clarify on the origin of the term redneck, the location where the protests with the red scarves, the symbols of union members or communists, was in Blair Mountain. Secondly, we also just want to plug our own episode right now with Gigi speaking on our xenophobia and Marxism episode 1 where you'll listen to their accounts of of the term Asian American being appropriated in much the same way as redneck, which I think you'll find very interesting. Also, while I'm here, big shout out to our new Patreon supporters. In seeing how African Americans had united under a single identity, under a single banner, a lot of 
Asian American leftists started organizing with the Black Panthers and came up with the term like yellow peril supports black power. And that's how the term Asian American has started. It was a leftist radical term and not everyone accepted it at first, but like every other leftist radical term, it has been co-opted by liberals. And now it's become this kind of badge of honor to be like, oh my gosh, I'm Asian American, hashtag boba, hashtag like import car scene, whatever. (laughs) And it's kind of lost its value in organizing. And, you know, now when you say you're, I'm Asian American, it's almost like being reduced to the model minority or something. And That's fucked up. I always just thought it was because like Texas was hot and then you had to tan on the neck. Language being a continuous process of metaphor, you know, history is semantics. What Mao was combating that form of liberalism, undoubtedly that's changed in all its aspects in how it manifests in people. But I think like we need to understand people in the imperial core, like so privileged, they can afford to just run off ideas and none of the ideas have to make sense and they're still going to survive and they'll probably still get fat bellies and they'll still stay warm and they're still going to have medical care and all these things. People can believe anything in the imperial core. Like it doesn't go against their chances for survival for the most part, as long as they can like do mechanical tasks and things that like as wage slaves. People can just still live good lives, but of course, back to Mao and combat liberalism, like these people were fighting for the survival of the Communist Party of that cell. So it's, it's again, it's trying to bring about something new among all of these words and ways that people can talk about real things happening in the world. Let's have a look at some of the text, actually. We stand for active ideological struggle because it is the weapon for ensuring unity within the party and the revolutionary organizations in the interest of our fight. Every communist and revolutionary should take up this weapon. I mean, it is also a like a literal fight at this point. Like Mao is writing this, he's at war, right? Like Japan's invaded, the KMT exists. Like, he's he's literally engaged in a fight for the future of China right now. The cogs of history are literally turning beneath his feet. He is actively engaged in war with Japan and the KMT here. Like, this is not a turn of phrase or like, oh, he's just speaking metaphorically. Like, he's he's literally at war. Yeah, thanks for that clarification there, totally. And... Again, it still fucking fascinates me that he's at war and he's still talking about combating an ideology, something that just is purely in people's brains. He wouldn't do that if it wasn't so essential, if it wasn't absolutely fundamentally crucial to their fight, to their success and to their survival. So this is why we wanted to share this with all of our listeners. And if you can share this about, you know, future listeners too would be appreciated. And just so they can really understand that the task is still there for us to combat liberalism in our lives and things, but maybe not like this. The task is to always try and just be scientific socialist in, in our analysis of things. Yeah, I mean, that's also what dialectical materialism is, right? Like the idea of the base and the superstructure both influence each other. The superstructure is literally one half of that puzzle. 
which means that what people think, how they think, what they think, what they believe is literally one half of the fight. That's one half of the struggle, right? The material base influences what people think, believe, and say, and then what people think, believe, and say in turn turns backwards and influences the means of production, right? This is basically Mao's contribution to communist thought, generally speaking. So you've probably heard types like ML, right? Like Marxist, Leninist, and then you've got MLM, you've got Marxist, Leninist, Maoist. So Mao's contribution to the science of communism writ large is this focus on the superstructure, right? The cultural revolution, the idea that how people think and what they think influences their actions, it changes reality, right? And that's important when you're dealing with material conditions because ultimately people are people right so we can talk about systems you can talk about structures all day but systems and structures are executed by people right i mean we can talk about capitalism and huge sort of esoteric systems but they're people ceos of companies are people with addresses right so changing how people think and how they feel and how they see the world fundamentally changes the means of production over time it's a very real material grounded understanding of how that works just so people don't feel bad as well. You can have all kinds of thoughts, like all different thoughts pop in everybody's different mind. But it's like, it doesn't make you liberal, like just to think something liberal one time. What matters is, again, what always matters, like actual material change. Like if you directly do something because of a liberal thought, then yeah, you're doing liberal shit, aren't you? So that's what we're against. Yeah, I mean... I'm not saying feel bad about yourself, yeah, no, right? Like, I'm not saying, like, not. go through life and feel like a piece of shit. No, it's just, like, have a sort of vague understanding that you have to actively work to overcome the predominant capitalist ideology. And we've, we all have to do that. Like, everyone does, including me. I'm not special. I'm not, like, some kind of god that is bestowed upon Earth, right? Like, I'm just a, some normal dude, right? Like, and I'm, not, I'm exactly the same. I'm not exempt from any of this, right? But also don't feel bad about yourself. Like, talking about the historical context of this document was written specifically for a party line when it was actively at war, right? Chances are, if you're listening to this, you're not a member of a actively at war communist party. So it's a different, it's a different thing. You shouldn't, you shouldn't necessarily take this and 100% adhere to it. It's a, a completely different time, a completely different context and everything. Yeah, you shouldn't feel bad just because you have, like, liberal thoughts all that matters is only whatever matters just direct action and Mao was determining what actions to not take in the party and actions that could only ever happened by somebody's liberal thoughts so it's about recognizing that to see somebody harming the interests of the masses and to not feel indignant or dissuade or stop him and reason with him, but allow him to continue. This is the eighth type. So that's specifically about not doing something as well. Monkey see, monkey do, basically. Um, if the Communist Party aren't doing things, for example, letting people get away with bad things, then people are going to see that. And then that breeds, again, this culture of not letting people get away with doing bad things but liberalism rejects ideological struggle and stands for unprincipled peace thus giving rise to a decadent philistine attitude and bringing about political degeneration in certain units and individuals in the party and the revolutionary organizations 
So liberalism manifests itself in various ways. This is what it looks like. You can see it. It's not a thought in somebody's mind. You can see this now, and it's being expressed through a human body. Let things slide for the sake of peace and friendship when a person has clearly gone wrong and refrained from principled argument because he is an old acquaintance, fellow townsman, a schoolmate, a close friend, a loved one, an old colleague, or an old subordinate. Or to touch on the matter lightly instead of going into it thoroughly, so as to keep up on good terms. The result is that both the organisation and the individual are harmed. This is one type of liberalism. So another one is to indulge in irresponsible criticism in private instead of actively putting forward one's suggestion to the organisation. To say nothing to people to the faces but to gossip behind their backs or to say nothing in a meeting but to gossip afterwards. To show no regard for all of the principles of the collective life but to follow one's own inclination. This is the second type. To let things drift if they do not affect one personally. So to say as little as possible while knowing perfectly well what is wrong. To be worldly wise and play safe and seek only to avoid blame. This is the third type. Not to obey orders but to give pride of place to one's opinions. To demand special consideration from the organisation but to reject its discipline. This is the fourth type. Oh, to demand special consideration, but then reject its discipline. God. <laughs> and going back to my, like, you know, cell wall analogy, these essentially things that are going to keep the cell wall intact. These are things that Mao thinks he needs to defend the party against, right? To essentially strengthen the cell walls and to stop them breaking down and to stop this party degenerating into some sort of wishy-washy, doesn't really stand for anything, take it or leave it, doesn't really care, right? Like, you, the party has to actively stand for something. And, and when you actively stand for something, that is to combat all things that are actively against you. And that's obviously liberalism here because that is the opposite to what communism stands for, right? Yeah, boss. This is a good one, like to indulge in personal attacks, pick quarrels, vent personal spite, or seek revenge instead of entering into an argument and struggling against incorrect views for the sake of unity or progress or getting the work done. That's the fifth type. So obviously, yeah, no point getting into quarrels. Go over what you literally disagree against. And if you really care that much about it, you want to come to the correct conclusion, isn't it? So then you struggle against the argument rather than the person because you want to get to the conclusion. And if you don't really care to get to the bottom of an argument, then why are you attacking somebody? I do this all the time, this one. To regard oneself as having rendered great service to the revolution, to pride oneself on being a veteran, to disdain minor assignments, while being quite unequal to major tasks, to be slipshod in work and slack in study, this is the 10th type. I mean, that's just vibes. Sure. I mean, that's just the difference between, like, education and action, right? So what you're saying there is, like, if you keep acting and you keep doing things, right, 
without really understanding why you're doing them or the education and learning something and then applying it through praxis, right? Education is just as important as your action because education defines your action. It lets you know what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing, right? So to be acting without knowing why or what you're doing or how to do it is not beneficial. Indeed, and to pride yourself on being a veteran, I mean, yeah, well done, you're a veteran. You should be proud or to think that because you're a veteran, you don't have to do minor assignments. Come on. Right. You know what I mean? That's in the form of liberalism, I'd say is like just egoism, isn't it? It seems he kind of got that from Lenin. Like Lenin had the idea that if you were like, oh, I'm probably not going to get this exactly right, but if you were like a party member, like a higher up, you still had to go and work at a factory. Like you still had a normal everyday job to stop those people becoming a class of their own, to stop them sort of becoming detached and separated from the actual working class. You still had to go and work a nine to five at the factory with everyone else, right? You're not special. You're not above these people. Mm. An interesting practical point because when we talk about reminding people what the fucking they're for, in a communist society, when things are developed and that's at a point where it's it's equal to the imperial core, you could also have people going about their daily lives and starting to believe anything and not realizing that people fought the revolution for what they've got. So it would definitely be important to obviously have veterans among the masses for those reasons to remind people, no, look, we fought and died against these fucking oppressors. Yeah, of course. I mean, they, they do have, you know, they do have additional knowledge, right? So they do, you could, you can call on them for expertise or like special help advisors. Like they do more, they do know more than a sort of brand new recruit for sure. So it's not saying that like they know as little as everyone else. Their relationship to the material means of production has to be the same as everyone else. Because if it's not, then what you'll end up doing is creating a sort of political class that are now detached from the means of production, right? They don't go to work every day. They sort of, you know, do whatever they do, sit around, whatever. And now they're at risk of becoming their own class entirely, right? They're not proletariat members anymore, right? Because their relationship to the means of production is not one of the proletariat. So now they risk becoming a whole other class and that has all sorts of problems that come along with it. So it's just saying that even if you're a party elder, even if you are senior, you do know more, you have been in the party for giant numbers of years, right? Your relationship to the means of production still has to be the same as everyone else, right? You're not special in that sense, right? You still have to work with your fellow comrades shoulder to shoulder in the factory, right? Yeah, so it's combating individualism as well, and it's also combating alienation alienation one from one struggle and role in the revolution as well as others roles in the revolution we all know better than anybody else so you can just help out wherever the fuck you needed and the revolution needs everyone to be aware of one's own mistakes and yet to make no attempt to correct them taking a liberal attitude towards oneself this is the 11th type Made a mistake, correct it. Other people have to do that labor. If you don't, that's not fair. You wouldn't like a golden rule. For sure. We could name more, but these 11 are the principal types. They are all manifestations of liberalism. 
So again, people are only doing this shit or not doing this shit because they're thinking like a liberal. Liberalism. You know, I've just thought of it as well. Go on. Do you know the film Three Hundred? Yeah. You've seen the film Three Hundred with like all the Spartans and whatever. There's only three hundred of them and blah blah blah. I love it. Right. So you can also think about this as a sort of manifesto to protect a military unit, right? Like if one, remember the dude who was like really hunched over and he couldn't even pick up a shield properly? Yeah. So he was like, no, dude, you can't join, right? Because he's the weakest link and the chain's only as strong as the weakest link. So he's going to be somewhere, he's going to get killed. And then the whole unit fails because of that one problem in the unit's armor, right? This document is essentially constructing an ideology for the unit, right? To keep the unit strong. Mm-hmm. So that it doesn't break down, and and that's just another way to think about it. Of course, they were definitely ableist then, but this is more ideological in it. Just so it's the exact same, but about like how to think. It's giving them a manual that they can look at, and then they can stop these behaviors before they do them, or they can stop other people's behaviors because having read it, these phenomena happen in the world, or Mao wouldn't have written about it. So they knew people are going to come across these situations, just as the West knows that people are going to fucking be communists and revolt in their own way. It's just about managing it correctly. Liberalism is extremely harmful in a revolutionary collective. It is a corrosive, which eats away unity, undermines cohesion, causes apathy and creates dissension. It robs the revolutionary ranks of compact organization and strict discipline, prevents policies from being carried through and alienates the party organizations from the masses which the party leads. It is an extremely bad tendency. See, look, he's saying all alienation and then that's where I'm getting my analysis, you know what I'm saying, I'm on it. So anyway, liberalism stems from petty bourgeois selflessness. It places personal interest first and the interest of the revolution second. And this gives rise to ideological, political and organisational liberalism. Because of course, yeah, once people just start doing this liberal shit, alienate themselves from the party they alienate the party from them with the individualist fucking egotistical attitudes but they would band together eventually you know as a political organization so i was foreseen no i was gonna say i mean he also literally saw it with the white army right the white army that you know the united states and the uk and everything brought in during the ussr during lenin's time to fight the red army i mean it was called the white army it was literally the counter-revolutionary forces they tried to use to take over the USSR at the very beginning. Wow, yeah. I didn't know that. Thank you for that. People who are liberals look upon the principles of Marxism as abstract dogma. They approve of Marxism, but are not prepared to practice it or practice it in full. They are not prepared to replace their liberalism by Marxism. These people have their Marxism but they also have their liberalism as well. They talk Marxism, but practice liberalism. They apply Marxism to others, but liberalism to themselves. They keep both kinds of goods in stock and find a use for each. This is the minds of how certain people work. There's probably that Owen Jones, and there's probably an example of this. Oh, who's that other fucking 
from Nevada media and that shit, people know about Marxism and they use it and many opportunists today on various platforms know Marxism, but you practice liberalism and you can practice liberalism simply by not practicing Marxism, simply by not taking a class struggle where it needs to go, organizing your communities, organizing for international efforts and combating the Imperial Corps if you live in the Imperial Corps. So. I actually just looked up, do you know earlier I said about the Second Sino-Japanese War? That was actually 1927. I thought it was 1937. So I'm 10 years out at this point, which means that this is still written during war. It's just, I thought this was written one month after the war, but it's actually written 10 years after the war. So what it means is that like Japan has definitely taken over, is definitely in control certain parts of uh, China at this point. Whereas I thought that it was like right at the beginning and they were just getting started. But 10 years in, they definitely control like giant parts of China by this point. What was that film you showed me? Was it Hong Kong with that lake? What year is that? That film, I think that was called Sacrifice or The Sacrifice. Let me look it up real quick. I can get it. No, no but honestly, Chinese war films, for anyone that cares, um, Chinese war films are absolutely incredible. Like uh, my, my Chinese isn't great, so I still have to watch it with subtitles on. But honestly, it's such a great film. Like, those war films are, like, only the one... Those are the war films that make me cry. Like, for real. Like, the way that... um, I could talk about Chinese cinema forever, but the way that the Chinese do war films so differently is incredible. Like, the cinematography is so great. I know what you're thinking of. The one with the river, and it's in Hong Kong, and the British are on one yeah, side of the river yeah, with, yeah. Like, um, with binoculars, and they're looking at the factory, and it's all about the factory. That is the second Sino... Japanese war, yes, because one side of Japan, obviously, and it's about that warehouse, right? And they're trying to protect the warehouse. I forget what that's called. Oh, the 800. That's called the 800. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's from 2020. That's a really good film, by the way. Anyone that wants to watch that, it's a Chinese film called The 800 um, from 2020. It's really good. Yeah, it, that is. That film is set in 1937. So it's literally the same year that Mao wrote this document. Is it actually? It's um, the Battle of Shanghai. No way. Yes, it's the exact same year. Right. See, I knew, I knew it, but yeah. it's probably close there. But that was. Yeah, the film is based on real life events, which is the defense of the Sihong Warehouse, 1937, Shanghai, by Chinese NRA troops during the Battle of Shanghai. And that takes place in the Second uh, Sino Japanese War. It's a really good film, guys. That film for real made me cry. Like, Look. if you're ever. If you're into any type of war films, go watch the 800. You will have to watch it with Chinese sub- uh, with subtitles, unless you, you know, are fluent in Putonghua, which you might be. I don't know. Look, people are gonna watch that after this, the 800. But film. yeah, definitely watch it with Chinese subs. It is one like when I'm saying these Chinese war films, not talking like 19 fucking 40 films. Like these are all brand new, like in the, in the 2020s. Got like top tech incredible cinematography that you're just not going to see from the West because it was simply not made from the West. Yep. Really groundbreaking and obviously the perspectives in terms of like why they're fighting, who they're fighting against. It's just total opposite than you get from obviously like a US war fucking film. Definitely watch that and also think about, you know, Mao writing this while that's going on. Literally a battle taking place at fucking Shanghai. The f- Fuck, do you know what I mean? It's like major that. Yeah. That's the second Sino-Japanese war. The, the second time that Japan invaded China. Yeah. But you don't see like no Western leaders like during the world wars and that and major wars just coming out with just insanely good like 
theory. <laughs> like, yeah, well, that's that's why I love watching Chinese war films because the only war films we ever get here in the West, it's World War II, right? That's like basically all we get. We get World War II and every story is basically the same, right? Like we go over and save the day. That's every story. Or it's like Vietnam, you get like Platoon, Armageddon, Deer Hunter, those types of films. Sometimes you get a Vietnam film. <laughs> but mostly, you know the story, you know the plot, you know the history about it, right? But honestly, how many of you can tell me like the ins and outs of the of the Second Sino-Japanese War? Like how many people know what that happened, where, how it played out, the factions, the war, like how it actually played out? Because you, we can do that for World War Two, right? Like D-Day and you, know, you can do that because that's the films you've seen. But can you do that for like the first Sino-Japanese War or the second Sino-Japanese War? Like I couldn't until I watched that film and then I actually understood because it shows you, it breaks all down for you. There's a river and the English are literally on the other side of the river and they're all just watching the Japanese basically... The film is about um, a warehouse. So the Chinese are holding up this warehouse. It's about a war obviously, and um, the Japanese are trying to invade and take over this warehouse, but the Chinese just will not give it up, right? They've been ordered to stand it down, and they just won't do it. The warehouse is right on the edge of a river, and on the other side of the river is Hong Kong, and there's Americans there, English there, upper upper class um, English and Americans there with the top hats and the monocles, and they've all got, like, binoculars, and they're literally just stood there, like, watching this war play out as um it's like tourists and honestly like you know yeah all tourists as well and there's like gambling yeah, and yeah. casinos on the other side of the river and you know Living at night good these, life. yeah and then at night these chinese soldiers that are like being attacked every day you know see the look across the river and it's all lit up and there's casinos and there's gambling and it's karaoke and they can see like the dancing and everything that goes on in the night over there meanwhile every day for them is like repelling wave after wave of, of japanese invaders and they won't they won't do anything about it this is ultimately where ideas will take people and where it did take people then Again, all these barriers and borders are just conceptions in people's minds, as Gramsci said. They're like metaphors for everything. So, of course, there is no barrier, there is no river. All these things are words. All this is, is about the importance of understanding, the importance of words, and the importance of ideology. An example of ideology that I give, it's like liberalism to historical materialism. Like Liberalism is just like so primitive in terms of how to perceive and go about the world because it's not accurate whereas historical materialism is if you can like do things through like a dialectical analysis and historical then you're gonna make better conclusions that difference on what there is and how you can interpret it anybody right now just look uh, on your phone, look at the time, look at the text, what does the date say, what does the text on your screen say. Now try and look at them words and not read them. Like literally try and look at words around you and not read them. It's impossible, you can't not read things. Once you've been told this is what certain letters mean, this is what certain letters mean once they're all together, that is, again, giving you an idea of what those symbols mean and then you understand them and interpret them as words. Historical materialism has the potential to basically change your whole understanding of virtually everything you see in the fucking world and to pick up on all this propaganda 
and all this liberalism. That's why it's so important, not just like see things as a Marxist, but also do things about some of the things that are making you feel indignant. Yeah, and check out some Chinese war films because they're incredible. The 800, but also Sacrifice is another one. That's from the Korean War, and it's about a bridge. It's about a strategically important bridge to the Chinese army, and the whole film is about, like, different people's perspectives in changing the film, in protecting the bridge. So the film is really good. And again, I talk about Chinese cinematography because the film switches from different people's perspectives throughout the film and how it all relates and ties around this bridge. So one part of the film you're going to follow, obviously, the Chinese army that have to defend and rebuild this bridge every time it gets bombed. And then another perspective is that of the American bombers that are coming over and having to bomb this bridge. And they bomb it, and then the next day it's rebuilt. And they're like, what the fuck is going on? Like, every time we bomb this bridge and it just comes back, like, what's happening? How are they doing this? And it just goes around all these different perspectives of this film. It, it, it's incredible, honestly. Like, Chinese war films are fantastic. Like, The Sacrifice, The 800, all of them, so good. Therefore, sweet. Okay, cool. Can I keep you for five more minutes? I know you've got your interview. Yeah, sure. Right, I just want to blast through a little bonus content for people on where do correct ideas come from by Mao Zedong. Okay, everybody, that wraps up this public episode for now. If you've enjoyed it, please give it a share on social media. Tell some friends about the podcast. It's free to do and it helps the podcast grow. If you want more out of us, you can always get bonus content for supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash lumpenpodcast. You can donate some change monthly and you'll get some extra episodes and more privileges such as the ability to ask our future guests a question we give you a heads up of that over the patreon you can find everything that we do in our link tree link in our show notes or on any social media and as always workers and lumpen of the world unite Mother gives you